Good morning. This morning I have the pleasure to introduce Pastor Kevin Walker. Uh, some of you have met with him and he's uh, been working here for about six weeks just as a temporary person who's been able to help us during a transitional season as a church. Uh, he's been looking at things at the church with me at a 30,000 foot point of view and it's been very helpful to have a set of eyes. At that point, Kevin had been to church one time here as a church and we had asked him to come in and be part of that. His job that he's going to be taking in Chicago as soon as his kids uh, finish this uh, school year, he'll be going to Chicago helping pastors do their job better uh, in preaching, particularly in preaching and in teaching. And so if you think my sermons have improved in the last six weeks, Kevin Walker is to thank for that. Uh, he'll be preaching this morning out of Ecclesiastes. We're starting this new series called The Meaning of Life. And there's a lot in this book for us to capture. And, and Kevin is going to take us there this morning. But I hope that you'll be encouraged by what he has to say today. I've been encouraged having him on the team, allowing him to uh, be part of assessing uh, what we do as a church, assessing my preaching style and different things like that. And it's just been a strong encouragement for us as a leadership team to have Kevin aboard. Uh, we've used him and utilized his uh, teaching as well. And when it comes to the elder training that we just completed for the new elders coming in. And so it's just been a real asset to have Kevin with us over the short amount of time that we've had him. A little his background. Uh, he was in Croatia. Uh, in the same country, not really working in the same area, but the same country as my best friend in the whole world. And so that was our connection. Uh, he was in the same country. That's really the only connection that we started with. Uh, but in that process, uh, he left from Croatia three years ago. Is that right? Three years ago to go to the Congo, they had adopted two children. And, uh, and they went there. They thought they'd be there for a number of months. It ended up being two and a half years uh, before they were able to, am I overstating that? At least two years uh, before they were able to uh, come back home. And so they just arrived here around Easter time frame uh, with their two children who you can meet after the worship service if you'd like. Uh, they've been able to adopt and finish the school year here. His family's from the area. They're staying with their parents during this season before going on to Chicago, which would be his next stop. But as we open up this morning... In the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm going to ask you this morning to stand. We're going to read through the first number of verses. If you're using the uh, hymnal, or excuse me, the, the pew that's in your Bible, uh, it's number 697, because Ecclesiastes is not an easy book to find for most of us. So number 697, and you can work from there. And uh, we're in Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read through the first number of verses here. Pray that God blesses the reading of his word. Here we go. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. 
there's no remembrance of former things, nor there'll be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would speak to us this morning. Lord, a passage that sets the paradigm for where we're going over the number, next number of weeks, Lord, of really, what is the meaning of life? What's the reason you have for us here? And Lord, I pray that you would just allow this to speak real and speak true to each of our hearts here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Kitchen utensils are one of those things that can be really helpful or really frustrating, depending on whether or not you know how to use them. Take, for example, maybe some of you have used it before, the Pampered Chef can opener. Anybody use this thing before? My first experience with that can opener was not a good one. It took me about 20 minutes trying to go at this thing, and finally, I just put it back in the drawer in complete frustration, said, I'll never use this thing. Well, my stubbornness got the better of me, and after a quick visit to the internet, quick tutorial, I came back and used it and realized that the Pampered Chef can opener does not cut down into the metal. It cuts sideways around the can. And it's, when you know how to use it, it's ingenious. It's the best can opener I've ever used. But I didn't know how to use it. The wisdom literature in the Bible, the books of Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Proverbs, some of the Psalms, they're a lot like the Pampered Chef can opener. They can be really helpful if you know how to use it right. Now, unfortunately, the church, we have not done such a good job handling the wisdom literature and the Bible. We're trying to cut down into the can instead of around, taking the wrong approach. We think of it, we're kind of lost because it's not like the commands, the Ten Commandments. We can do those. We can do the stories about Joseph and Israel. We can even do some of the prophetic critiques on sin in the congregation of God. But wisdom literature we have a hard time with. And so today as we begin a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, a kind of forgotten member of the wisdom literature in the Bible, we need to have a little primer, a little orientation, a very brief one, as to how we can use the wisdom literature in the Bible so that it becomes for us a helpful tool and not something we throw in the drawer in frustration. Okay? So let's take a look. Here's a few foundational pieces, a few helps for how to read wisdom literature in the Bible. First, wisdom literature in the Bible is not dry, empty philosophy divorced from everything else. Wisdom literature is set in the context of faith. You'll be familiar with early in Proverbs where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now remember, it's fear of not just God, it's fear of Yahweh. It's fear of the covenant God, a respect and a healthy living awe for him, living in relationship with the covenant God, the God who has delivered Israel. 
and brought him to himself to be his treasured possession. So the beginning of wisdom is to have a reverent and awful relationship with him. It is not just a set of ideas. It's how we live well in a relationship of faith. Second, and this is, the next few ones are where we start to lose it a little bit. But second, it is based on observation and experience of God's creation. So wisdom is not, it has overlap with secular wisdom, with just natural human wisdom. We see things, we see that if we drop, you know, a hammer, it's going to fall every time. And we say, oh, that's gravity. Well, biblical wisdom includes things like gravity, gravity because it's based on observation of the order, the way that God built his world, and the way that he rules over it. Now everybody, whether you're a Christian, whether you have this relationship with God or not, it's true that you are living in God's world under his rule, no matter what. So you would expect there to be some overlap here. But it's built on observation. And that leads then to a conclusion that it is not absolute truth. Hear me. It's not absolute truth. It is situational truth. Okay? Wisdom literature is situational truth, not absolute truth. It is not, for example, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not have idols. That is absolute truth. There is never a time when God will say, okay, in this situation, it's all right for you to have an idol. Never going to happen. But wisdom literature offers us times when there's things that what they say may or not be applicable in that situation. Let me give you an example. And you're about to outsmart a lot of critics of the Bible right now. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 Many people look at these verses and say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. How can it be true? Listen to what it says. Let me get there. Verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So verse 4 says, do not answer a fool. And verse 5 says, answer a fool. If you're looking at it like absolute truth, well, you've got a real problem. (laughs) But if you're looking at it as situational truth, where there are times that this is going to be what you need and times when you might need something different, now we can live with this. Many of you know Jim Walton. Well, his brother is John Walton, a famous Old Testament scholar at Wheaton College. And something he likes to say all the time is, it takes wisdom to use wisdom. Okay? It takes wisdom to use wisdom. And that's how you approach something like Ephesians, or sorry, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. There is a time when you should answer a fool so that he doesn't, he's not wise in his own eyes. But there's other times... Well, you should just leave him be because responding to him is only going to bring you down. Takes wisdom to use wisdom. So it's important to remember that biblical wisdom is situational truth, not absolute truth. That means it's something, it's not, 
I'm being careful. It's not the raw material for building doctrine, but rather it's something that we should be wrestling with, pondering over for a while to think about how it's best working out. Again, it takes wisdom to use wisdom. We'll come back to it. Finally, wisdom is perfected in the life and teaching of Jesus. Jesus is portrayed throughout the Gospels as the ultimate wise man. He teaches as a scribe, but one who has authority. Paul talks about Christ being our wisdom and giving a wisdom which is higher and greater than that of the world. One of the more famous lines that you may remember is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be like the wise man who builds upon the rock, namely, who builds his life on obedience to Jesus' commands. Jesus is the wise man. He gives us wisdom. He teaches and embodies wisdom. All that to say, in summary then, biblical wisdom... Biblical wisdom calls the people of faith to live well with God in his world. And every part of that phrase has some weight. Biblical wisdom calls the people of faith, there's a relationship, to live well, that is within the order that God has created, with God, again relationship, faith in Christ who has brought God near, and in his world. That is biblical wisdom. So Ecclesiastes then, as a member of the biblical wisdom tradition, is going to share that function, whether you believe it or not, if you've ever read it. Ecclesiastes then has a function in teaching us how we can live well in God's world with him. It does so... It aids our pursuit of wisdom, as you you see there, because it reflects on the tension that he feels. He, He carries, he brings wisdom to us in a unique way, and in a very inviting way, because we are getting an inside look at a wise man's personal struggle. And everybody loves to read people's struggles. Everybody loves to read the hard times. That's why tabloids do so well. You want to see everybody else's dirt. Well, Ecclesiastes is very inviting because you get to look in the diary of the journal of a wise man who's trying to get a handle on this. He's wrestling with the tension between the chaos that he observes in the world and the intended order that he know God created in the world. He's wrestling with the tension between the evil that he sees and the good he believes. He's wrestling with his experience and his faith. And in so doing, he does not only articulate his own struggle, but he articulates our struggle as well. Our struggle to reconcile evil in the world with the good we understand God to made. To reconcile our struggle between our experience and our faith. Let's take a look first heading we're going to look under here is this, that Koheleth articulates our struggle. 
Koheleth articulates our struggle. And I got a few cocked heads, and everybody's first question is, what or who is Koheleth? Koheleth is the man struggling. Koheleth is the diary whose diary it is you are reading. Koheleth is the primary speaker in this book. He is the one whom you've seen called preacher or teacher in your text. He is the one for whom the book is named. See, Koheleth is merely the Hebrew word of which Ecclesiastes is a Greek translation. Well, if this is the Old Testament, why would we use a Greek name, Ecclesiastes? Why not use the Hebrew name? We'll call him Koheleth. Both have the idea that of assembler or gatherer, either bringing together the wisdom literature or bringing together people to instruct them. But when we think teacher or preacher, there's a lot of different connotations and overtones now that there weren't back in the day. So I'd prefer to use the word Koheleth as we talk about this character, the man who struggle we're reading. And now you know who he is, so you can't you know, you're going to be with me. But I'd like to think about who he is, why we don't want to say preacher or teacher. If you look at the end of the book, very last paragraph, chapter 12, starting in verse 9, we hear a little bit about who the Koheleth is and what he did. Chapter 12, verse 9 says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also, or Koheleth, also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And Koheleth sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So Koheleth's duty is not merely to preach or teach, but he is living and working and arranging teaching material in a community function. He's not just a mere proclaimer. He's an experimenter. experimenter. He's engaged with people. And I think that's an important piece to know. And we, will, we won't carry along the baggage that comes with preacher or teacher. But there's another man in this text, other than the Koheleth, and that's the author. You see, the author is the one who shows up here in verse 1, verse 2. You see that here it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Okay, so we're talking about the Koheleth in the third person. Whereas when you get down to verse 12, you switch to first person. Do you see it? Chapter 1, verse 12 says, I the preacher. And so I just think it's important for you to see that there is an author who takes the writings, the journal, the diary, the struggle of Koheleth, and preserves it for the people of God so that the Holy Spirit can have his way with us through it. The author presents, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Koheleth's writings. He thinks it's important enough for you and I to hear, to ponder, to wrestle with, and struggle with. But let's look at the struggle a little more carefully. The struggle of Koheleth, or our struggle, is between the tension, as we mentioned, the tension with his human experience and his faith. Let's start with the difficult experience he has. Well, the seed that germinates his entire quest, 
his search for discovery of meaning, the seed that germinates, the driving question is in verse 3. He asks, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is the purpose? What is the takeaway? What is the value or the lasting impact of any and all human endeavor on this earth? Everything that you or I may do, what is the lasting takeaway value? He wants to know. Well, he gives you his summary answer then from 4 to 11 in a poem. And his summary answer is not a very good one. He said, I see lots of busyness, but nothing that sticks for very long. There's an endless monotony of cycles. Did you hear him as Milo read? Did you hear the endless monotony? Listen again. A generation goes and a generation comes. The sun rises and the sun goes down and then it hurries up to get back to its place so it can do it again the next day. The winds blow south and north and they return on the cycles and they just keep going. It's a big cycle. The rivers, I love this one. The rivers flow and flow and flow to the place where they're flowing. They keep on going, but that sea never fills up. Why all the work, rivers? Why are you struggling so hard to send all that water down? It just disappears. An endless monotony, a cycle, without takeaway value. There's a worthlessness to it. There is no change to status quo. The sea isn't full. And man, sometimes Ecclesiastes might seem awful far, but when we get to something like verse 8, where he says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear satisfied with hearing, that is about as true today as it maybe has ever been. Let me give you an example why I think that. Everybody has your cell phone. You can put it away if you're on it now, but how do you advertise a cell phone these days? By the quality of the speech? How great your reception is? You sell a cell phone, you advertise it based on how good of pictures it takes. A telephone being sold by the quality of its pictures. And then all the social media apps and websites that are striving to keep up with the huge output of photos that people are taking. And that great photo that you saw last week that changed your life and the way you think, do you even know what it is anymore? Do you ever see the photo and say, well, I don't need to see another one. That's good enough for me. Even skip photos. When you go to the Grand Canyon... Or you see a majestic Rockies. Can you stop looking? Oh, saw the Grand Canyon. Great. The eye is never satisfied. It doesn't fill up. Nor does your ear. That's why we have XM radio, Sirius radio. We have earphones to take with us everywhere on our phones. We have 24-hour news. You get that piece of information and you say, oh, that's it. 
That's the one I'm holding on to forever. And of course we think, no. It doesn't satisfy. So we use our eyes. We're seeing things all the time and we're hearing things all the time, but nothing really sticks. There's nothing to hold on to. So why bother? And it brings him to the point. He says, there's nothing that's remembered. Things that were done are what are being done and things that have been done are what will be done. There's no remembrance of the last things. No one will remember the future things. hundred years from now, you and I will all be forgotten. Nobody's going to remember you. You go to work every day, you drive your nice car, you make real serious impact at your work or in the community and your family. In a hundred years, two generations, you're forgotten. That leads to what you could expect him to lead to, and it's the great point in the memorable verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. He begins it in verse 2 and he ends it in chapter 12, verse 8, and he says, Vanity of vanities! Emptiness! Vapor! Meaningless! Gone! It's transience, randomness, chaos, meaninglessness. That's life. That's what you see. That's what he experienced. It leads him to despair. We've said it before, not in his words, maybe, but we look at things and that should not be like that. That's not how it's supposed to be. You're feeling that tension. When you say it's not how it should be, because that means you're expecting or anticipating it should be something better. You feel that tension. It's our struggle. Haven't we all seen what he saw? Have you ever hit a limit of pleasure? There was something you did or were going to do and you thought it would make you so happy and you did it and you know it was really good, but it wasn't what you hoped it would be. Everybody has either experienced or seen people who are not satisfied with wealth or money and that it doesn't bring them the happiness they anticipated it will. We've all seen the wicked prosper in their wickedness and the righteous suffer in their righteousness and we say that should not be. Another phrase we have for it is how can bad things happen to good people? It's our struggle. And the most significant thing that drives Koheleth to see the emptiness is an aroma that floats through the entire book of Ecclesiastes and it's the smell of death. Why won't you be remembered? Because you won't be here. You might heap up a whole bunch of riches, but guess what? You die, and somebody that didn't work for your money gets it all. And who's to say that guy's not going to be a fool and wasted in two days? Vanity of wealth. Death is the great leveler. No matter where you are in your life. Leo Tolstoy, one of the famous Russian, one, maybe one of the greatest writers of all time, 
famous Russian author wrote books like Anna Karenina. He has a, one of his early writings was called A Confession, and it was about a spiritual awakening he has. And he has this picture of somebody watching him grow up for about 30 or 40 years where he reaches the pinnacle of his life and career. He's developed and matured physically, emotionally, socially, intellectually. And he says he imagines that man laughing at him. Because I don't know if there really was this man or not, but I picture this man laughing at me. And here's why. The man's laughing at me because I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. I was only surprised that I could have avoided understanding this from the very beginning. It has been, it has been so long known to all, namely, that today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come to those I love or to me. Nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten, and I shall not exist. Then why go on making any effort? How can man fail to see this and go on living? That is what's surprising. Only, one can only live while one is intoxicated with life. And as soon as one is sober, it's impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. That is precisely what it is. There is nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. So says the writer Leo Tolstoy in view of his own death, even at the pinnacle of his life, that death erases meaning. How then do we, how do you and I reconcile this with a faith that believes that God made a good creation and that he is good and still rules. And so not only do we struggle with this emptiness of our experience, we wrestle with the goodness of God and his creation. This man knew Psalm 19, where actually it says not just that the sun rises and falls, but it says that the sun declares the glory of God the whole time that he's rising and setting. That's not so negative. That's the exact opposite of what Kohalas says. He knows the Proverbs. Maybe he wrote the Proverbs. That herald the benefits of wise living. Think about Proverbs 28, 18. And the next three verses, I'll just read them to you. It says, whoever walks in integrity will be delivered. Do you know people who have walked in integrity and not been delivered from trial or death? I do. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. Do you know people that have worked themselves to the bone and not had enough to make the ends meet? I know lots of people. The faithful man abounds with blessing. You know people who are people you look up to for their faithfulness. 
but see that their lives consist or look more like curses than blessings? I do. And that's the tension. He's looking at what the Proverbs says are so positive about living a wise life and the goodness of God and his creation, and then he sits around and he sees just the opposite. And he doesn't know what to do with it. Ecclesiastes and Job help bring a little balance. They add a voice to our conversation with Proverbs. You know the suffering of Job. And a large point in the book of Job is that life is not a do-good, get-good kind of situation. That if you live well, things go well. Job was righteous like God said, no other man was like him in his righteousness. And yet he suffered. Job rebels against the idea that you do good, you get good. And there's a parallel here with Job. Job helps us learn how to read Ecclesiastes as well, and here's why. If you know Job, everybody knows the story. First two chapters, last chapter, right? In the middle, there's a lot of stuff we like to skip, okay? You could do a three-week sermon series on it, chapter one and two, the middle, 38 chapters, and then the last chapter. Whole thing's done. That's how some churches do it. Not here. But in the big middle, you have his friends, and you get cycles of his friends coming and giving advice. Well, you find out at the end, the punchline is that actually the friends gave a lot of bad advice, and that you shouldn't listen to the friends. But that Job spoke well, So what you have then in the book of Job, all inspired by God, false wisdom of the friends that serves as a foil of what not to believe because God rebukes them in the end. And on the other side, you have Job's true wisdom, which is endorsed by God at the end. What that means is that there are things in Job which are not gospel truth. Let me say it again carefully. All of Job is inspired, but the book of Job itself teaches that the friends were wrong at points. Don't be like these friends. They're the foil. But Job's teachings are endorsed. Ecclesiastes is similar. Remember we said it takes wisdom to use wisdom? It's no more true than in Ecclesiastes and Job. In Ecclesiastes, so if Job shows that it's not a one-for-one, if you do good, you get good. Ecclesiastes rebels against the the expectation that you will receive the righteousness and goodness of God tangibly, visibly in your life every day. Ecclesiastes rebels against that idea. He balances out the Proverbs that says that the faithful man abounds in blessing. Ecclesiastes balances it. And how he does it, we told you this is his journal, right? So you have Koheleth, and he's writing, and he looks at the world. And he writes down his observations. And like the friends, 
some of what he says is not gospel truth. Some of what he says is inspired by God to show us what not to believe. Okay? And some of what Koheleth writes is godly reflection to help understand the experiences and how we ought to live in this world. So we have these two poles that we're alternating between. False wisdom that says what we should not believe, true wisdom what we ought to. There's a very simple one where it's very explicit. Some of you will know Psalm 73, one of my favorite psalms. And it's the man sees the, he says, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he says, look at the wicked. Their riches are always increasing and they're prospering. And he says, all in vain have I kept my hands pure. My holiness is for nothing. And he says, if I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed you. So he tells you that what he just said in the psalm was wrong thinking. It was thinking without the context of God. Ecclesiastes does a lot of that. It shows you what kind of reflections you will have if you take God out of the equation. And then sometimes he comes to his senses, like the writer of Psalm 73, and he says, if I spoke thus... So in Ecclesiastes, we're wrestling with this tension. Ultimately, both Job and Ecclesiastes, what they're doing is they're seriously reckoning with the impact of sin in the world. And Ecclesiastes, the Kohelet's observation, what he drives him to is to despair of meaning outside of a relationship with God. And that causes him then to godly reflection. And it causes him then to say at the conclusion, remember your creator in your youth. The godly reflection that comes out of the futility of earthly wisdom. Wisdom in Ecclesiastes, you gotta, it takes wisdom to, to use wisdom, but wisdom in Ecclesiastes is trusting God, learning to understand that he rules over a world even when it doesn't look like he is because you see the impacts of sin and you say, how can this be? There's mystery there. I'm not a guy that likes to say mystery. I like to figure stuff out. But Ecclesiastes tells you that wisdom is allowing for this mystery of God's rule over a chaotic world. Do you see the outcomes of this struggle? Do you see what we learn both from our own tension and from Kohala's tension? I think at least two things. Maybe you've got more. I've got at least two, and I'm going to say them three different ways. All right? It forbids two things. First, it forbids secularism. It forbids secularism by simply pursuing secular wisdom. How can I live apart from God? 
And what does it drive him to? It drives him to despair and meaninglessness. And so by simple picking up and walking in those shoes, Kohala's struggle forbids a life without God. He shows you the vanity and the meaninglessness of it. But second, it also forbids unrealistic or naive optimism. It forbids the optimism that says, let go, let God, he'll make it okay. That faith will cancel out or that trusting God will make sure that everything in your life goes as smoothly as you want and that God is committed to meeting the American dream in your life. Ecclesiastes smashes that on the anvil of experience. I'll say him again. It critiques two ways of life. Ecclesiastes critiques those who have our eyes wide open to see the misery and chaos and pain in the world and become cynical. Ecclesiastes pushes you and me not to cynicism, but to trust in mystery, to trust in something more than what your eyes can see, to trust in something that is not just under the sun, but the one who rules over the sun. Second critique that it makes. It, appro- it critiques those who live with eyes closed. Those of us who live with eyes closed to the dark reality of life in a sinful world. To you, he pushes you to see the bad things in the world, to admit that they are there. And that they, under, they are under God's sovereign rule. That doesn't mean you make less of them. Cannot make less of the atrocities that are happening in the Middle East. Cannot make less of the things that happen in our own backyard. So to both groups here, this is our third way, to both groups here, I want to say one thing each. To those of you who have suffered, to those of you who've had the hard experience, whether it be relational conflict, abuse, oppression, discrimination, illness, trauma, disease, financial distress, tragedy, or death. Ecclesiastes validates your struggle. It does not tell you to push it under the rug. Live with the struggle. That's okay. You might come to the point where you think it's meaningless. That's all right. But don't stay there. Be there for a while. I'm not rushing you anywhere. Neither is Ecclesiastes. That suffering is real. 
that could impact you for a long time, maybe your whole life. But Ecclesiastes, Koheleth, calls us to move from a faith or move to a faith that endures in chaos, that can stand up to the trials of life, allowing for God's mystery and sovereign rule even when you don't see it. It calls you to trust more than your eyes can see. To those of you who have not yet suffered, heed the warning of Ecclesiastes. You are not exempt, nor will you be. You live in a world subjected to futility by sin, and your chaos and your trouble are coming. You cannot escape death. Let go of your shallow optimism and your hollow comforts. Let go of the Joel Osteen heresy that God will give you your best life now. He will not. Let go of it. Let go of your naivete that says everything's going to be okay in this world. God promises you nothing except his presence. Nothing more, but nothing less. He calls you to not be surprised when the hard things come. Don't be one of the statistics who said, well, I believed in God, but then this happened, and so I walked away. How could God do that? I'm telling you, it will happen. Mature in your faith now so that when it does, you are not blown like a wave on the sea. That you are not like the seed that falls on the rock and is choked out or scorched by the sun of trial. Do not be that one. Mature in your faith now before it comes. That is wisdom. To grow in a deeper faith where you trust God in a world where it doesn't look like he is reigning. That's the struggle. But brothers and sisters, our struggle points us to our hope as well. struggle points to a hope beyond the tension and trial we have on this world. Ecclesiastes written by son of David and king in Jerusalem. Ecclesiastes struggle, Kohelet's trial points you to another son of David. To another king in Israel. It points you to another wise man points you to a man who saw and faced sin and chaos and death in the world. Kohela's struggle points you to a man of sorrows, to a man who cried out in despair when God abandoned him. Kohela points you to a man who trusted God in the chaos of unjust suffering. Kohela points you to the man who trusted God unto death, death on a cross. Koheleth points you to the man who bore the full weight and consequence of the sin and chaos that we experience every day. Koheleth points you to the man who took that death on himself. Koheleth points you to the man who takes a God that might seem far and brings him near. 
Koheleth points you to the man who by his resurrection conquered sin and death. It points you to the man who has ascended and now reigns at God's right hand above the sun in heaven. To the man who will return and complete his conquest of sin and death and remake the heavens and earth. Remade in such a way as that they will be without sin, death, and despair. To the man to whom all creation sings. To the man who gives meaning to everything. Koheleth points you to Jesus. To Jesus! It fuels our gospel hope by pointing us to Jesus and deepening our faith in him amidst a complex and confusing world where sin seems to reign, but actually Christ does. Points you to Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we need your wisdom. We pray that you would make us wise people who live well in a world filled with sin, your world corrupted. Make us people who see the chaos and yet trust. Make us wise in Christ for our good and your glory, we pray. Amen.